What's up, church? Hey, we're grateful to uh, have you. Uh, we are actually in week three of a series called Take a Vow. We have two more to go after this one. Uh, if you have not had a chance to um, kind of stay up with the series, we encourage you to go find them. They're on our website. Uh, go check them out because in order to kind of get the whole glimpse of this series, you really need week one. And uh, then we build on week one with week two. And then here it is. We're in week three. Uh, but one of the cool things that we're doing is we're actually giving you a picture of what marriage is from uh, a, a story in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 24. And last week, we gave you a picture of a guy named Abraham. And Abraham is a picture of who God the Father is as he displays characteristics to his family and uh, even to his son. And last week, we just saw a couple of things that we encouraged all of us in here to be. And one of them that we saw from Abraham, which is the exact representation of God our Father, is that he's a covenant keeper, uh, meaning that his yes is yes and his no is no, that he is a guy who who is faithful to do what he says he would do. And we saw that that's really different than a lot of the marriages and relationships that we see in our culture. Matter of fact, a lot of our culture is built off of contracts, right? Uh, we have contracts with our cell phone provider. We have them with our internet provider. If we're going to go build or buy a house, build a house, whatever, we're getting into contracts with banks and other people, and we have mediators on our behalf. Why? Because contracts are based off of two parties of mutual distrust, meaning you don't really like the other party. Like you're not really sure that you are, are going to agree with everything they want you to agree to. And so there's just kind of some animosity there. And oftentimes we approach our marriages the same way. We're looking for one party to fail or to mess up because as soon as they do, then guess what? We'll break the contract. We'll go and we'll do something else because we're just trying to get back at them or simply because they didn't keep their end of the bargain. But that's different than what God wants us to be and that's covenant keepers. God wants us to remain faithful and pure till the very end. And that he wants us to remain, what? Devoted to each other. And, and here's the difference. A contract is built off of two parties of mutual distrust. And a covenant is built off of two parties of mutual trust for one another. And actually, for a covenant to stay intact, all you have to do is have one party that remains faithful to the very end. Matter of fact, earlier today, I had a couple that came up and uh, they were just sharing a story about their daughter. And uh, the, the crazy thing is, is that they have actually been working on their marriage and uh, they don't even live around here just visiting. And she just was really displaying something to me that, that was true. And she said, my daughter has been faithful all this time. And it's just, I've been praying for her, but at what point does she leave? And I said, well, at what point does God give her permission to leave? Because as a covenant keeper, the one thing that God always does is he always remains the same. And the cool thing about a covenant keeping God is that he never, ever, ever, ever lets down his end of the bargain. And so no matter how far you run from him, no matter, no matter how many times that you and I per se have adulterous relationships against God, we go out and we wander off and we get entangled in the things of the world, the one thing he always does is allows us to come back and be what? In relationship with him. And that's what a covenant marriage, that's what covenant relationships should be. One party says, I'm always going to be faithful to the end. 
I don't care what you do. I don't care how you've done it. I'm going to stay here, and I'm keeping my eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. And if one party will stay that way, then the covenant relationship is always there. And so that's true. And then the second thing that we talked about last week is that we want what? Our children to be a blessing to other people, that the seed of Abraham was a blessing. And not only that, but that's the seed of God, isn't it? Through his son Jesus, it's a blessing. Like No one in here had a baby, and you're holding the baby in your arms, and like, I can't wait for my baby at three months old to move back into my house at 30 years old. Like, nobody said that, right? <laughs> no. Now, you're not singing lullabies and hoping that one day your son's going to grow up to go to the state penitentiary, Right? Yeah, you want your children to be a blessing. Well, the way that that happens is through you imitating the Father. And so we saw that picture, and that was the picture of Abraham as it relates to God. He is a foreshadowing picture of God the Father. The crazy thing is, is that there's three other characters in the story. There's a guy named Isaac, and Isaac is a picture of someone as well. So you got Abraham as a picture of God the Father. You have Isaac, he's the picture of Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, and he's the picture of the sacrificial son, right? Then you also have Eliza in this story. Eliza is the comforter, the helper that goes out and gets a bride, and the bride is this lady named Rebecca, and she represents the church. And we're going to get to Eliza next week, and we're going to get to Rebecca the following week, but today we're going to be looking at the sacrificial son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to be looking at how he is a coming Messiah and an exact representation and figure head of a guy named Isaac. And you're going, okay, that's awesome. How are you going to get it? Well, I want you to look with me in Genesis chapter 24. It's the same text. Last week, we read verses 1 through 9. And this week, we're actually going to skip the main part of the story. And we're going to go to the very end of Genesis chapter 24. Matter of fact, we're going to start in verse 61. And so we're going to skip like 50 verses of the main story. I've never done that before in any sermon series I've ever done. But it's fitting, and here's why. You see Isaac briefly mentioned, and that's it. In verses 1 through 9, he's not even really present as the story takes place. Abraham has this servant. Uh, the servant comes to him, and Abraham says, Eliza, I want you to make an oath to me, an oath to me and to God that you're going to go find a bride for my son. And then he gives two stipulations. He says, number one, the wife that you find for my son cannot come from the Canaanite people that we live among. you got to go get her and bring her back so that she looks more like God than these people that I'm around. Number two... You're not to take my son Abraham anywhere. He stays right here. Why? Because this was a promised land. There was a promised uh, name. And all the earth would be blessed, the descendants of, of Abraham and his son Isaac. And so he goes, that's the stipulations. Outside of that, you don't see anything of Isaac at all. Like he's not in the story at all. You see Eliza go and get the bride, uh, the bride Rebecca. You see that at one point he, he sees exactly who she is, so the angel of the Lord's leadership. He gets the bride, and then in 61, you get to pick up kind of the rest of the story and kind of what begins to happen. And in 61, it says, Then Rebekah and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. And so the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Beer Laharoi, and he was living in the Negev. And he went out to the field one evening to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. And Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. And she got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field that is coming to meet us? 
He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and she covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all that he had done, and Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah. And so she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, the interesting thing is this. In week one, we showed you a picture of how God has orchestrated a relationship with us. That the Father actually makes an offer to us through salvation. And as He makes an offer, we accept it. We enter into this betrothal period. And then two things happen. The bride, what, becomes pure and she keeps herself ready for her husband until he adorns her and goes to the wedding feast with her. And the husband goes away. And he's working on their house, and he's preparing a place for them to live. Now, what's interesting is, to me, is that Isaac's never really mentioned as being present in the story, but you do find him at the very end of the wedding feast. He is a picture of the coming Messiah who is waiting on his bride to come. And that's the picture of Jesus. Now, outside of that, in Genesis chapter 24, you don't have a whole lot about Isaac. And so you're going, well, awesome. How do we build this into our marriages? Like, how do we take this? If that's all we have on Isaac, then how do we move on? Well, the cool thing is that's not all we have on Isaac. Matter of fact, I dug up about 12 or 13 different things that are representations of the foreshadowing of Jesus through Isaac. I'm going to share 10 of them with you this morning. And so if you got your pen, I encourage you to start writing. I'm going to give you every text that I have so that you can go and do research, but I'm not going to put them up on the screen, so you're going to have to be listening. And so that's to my advantage today. So get your pen out. If you don't have a pen, raise your hand or slap your neighbor, and maybe they'll give you one, okay? Ten similarities, okay, starting in the very first one. Both of them are considered children of Abraham. Both of them are sons of Abraham. Genesis chapter 21 verse 2 says, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. And every time he is mentioned, it's a reminder of God's promise to him. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, you see a genealogy from Matthew. And in verse 1, it says that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Not only that, but they're also both characterized as children of joy. Genesis chapter 21 verse 6 says, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. If you remember, uh, Sarah was barren at old age, right? And she was old and uh, the Lord said, I'm going to give you a son. And do you remember what she did? (laughs) That's great. Awesome. How am I going to have a son at 90 years of age? And she laughed, and God said, is is anything impossible for me? But the thing is, is that he was characterized as a son of joy and laughter. Anytime you saw the name Isaac, it meant laughter. And literally, the the idea is Sokok, laughter, Isaac. That's his name back in the Hebrew, Isaac. Laughter, And so anytime you see his name, it's just a reminder of what God has done in their lives. Like if you have ever been far from God and you've been brought to him, there's many a times where you look back and you go, oh my gosh, can you believe that I used to be this way? And you kind of laugh a little bit. Like you're like, I cannot believe how far God has brought me. And you laugh and there's joy there, but there's laughter. That's the picture of Sarah and Abraham. I cannot believe all that God has done here. And every time I look at Isaac, 
I remember that God brings joy in the morning. and There's laughter because of all that God has done. The same is true of Jesus in Luke chapter 1, verse 41. Literally, Mary sings that Jesus, my God, is my Savior. He, she goes, this is joy. I am rejoicing in who God is through Jesus Christ. They're both conceived miraculously. That's the number three thing. It, have you ever thought about this? What's more miraculous, a virgin birth or a woman having a child at the age of 90? Both are miraculous. And what's interesting is Paul will tell us later that both are because of the Spirit of God. That neither were really born of flesh. That God had to intervene in both cases. And you see that. Sarah was 100 uh, or close, getting near to 100 years of age, right? She was in her 90s. And get this. God said, Sarah, is there anything impossible for, no, for me? No. The angel of the Lord appeared, uh, appeared to Virgin Mary. And uh, Mary said, how am I going to have a baby? I've never laid with my husband. And the angel of the Lord literally said, no word from God will ever return void. Like, I'm true to my word. And so you see the impossibilities. They also both submit willingly to their father. In Genesis chapter 22, Isaac says, Father, I have both wood and I have fire. And he willingly begins to go, what? To the altar. And he doesn't run. He doesn't take off. That's the same picture that you get of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he literally says in Matthew 26, verse 39, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as what? You will. He said, Father, do whatever you need to in me. You know what's interesting, too, is they're both sons of the promise. They're both the only begotten. Now, you, if you remember last week, I was sharing with you that Abraham actually had two sons, okay? The very first one, his name was Ishmael, right? But he was the son of disobedient. He came from the slave woman, Hagar. And Hagar and um, Abraham got together, they laid together, and they end up having the son Ishmael. But God never recognizes Ishmael as the son of the promise. Matter of fact, get this, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, Then God says to Isaac, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. There you will sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. Do you see what he said? He said, I'm only recognizing one of your sons, and that's Isaac, the son of the promise. Isn't it? true that in John chapter 3 verse 16 it's kind of our New Testament verse it says for God so loved the world that he gave his one and y'all with me his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life he goes there's a promise being fulfilled in both of them and they're both revealed as the only sons they're both also offered in sacrifice in Jerusalem. Mount Moriah is where uh, God instructs Abraham to take his son Isaac. Mount Moriah actually is the temple mount in Jerusalem. Solomon would build his temple. It would later be rebuilt there. And in the last days, we know the temple of the Lord will be built there again in Mount Moriah. That's where it is. That's the same place that he sacrifices his son. Jesus is also sacrificed in the same place because you know where Mount Moriah is? It's in the heart of Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus would die and later be rose again three days later. They both carried wood to their own sacrifice. You see that in Genesis chapter 22, Isaac willingly takes the wood and he goes up the mountain. And uh, that's what I, uh, Isaac does. In John 19 verse 17, it says that Jesus was carrying his own cross and he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. They both reveal the Father's heart as well. 
Genesis 22.12 says, Do not lay a hand on the boy as he's going to what? Literally raise the knife and he's going to bring it down on his son. And the angel of the Lord says, Because you have obeyed me, I'm going to spare your son. He was looking to see the father's heart. It's the same exact thing in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when Paul says, But God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were still sinners. What? Christ. He died for us. Demonstrates is the word in the Greek called indexis. It's where you get the word index finger. God demonstrates indexis his love for us and Jesus that while you were sinners, he died for us. And Jesus literally is the index finger pointing back to what? The heart of God. And demonstrates is in the, the perfect tense and it's in the present as well. Meaning that it, it continues and it's always present. Like God can demonstrate his love for you today just as he did for me in 1992 when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. You remember the date that God's love was demonstrated for you? You remember that? He's still demonstrating his love, and it is an exact replica of what he did through his son Isaac. And then here's the last two, and I'm going to kind of expound on these last two. They're both seeds of the promise. Now, Paul is going to write in Romans 9, he's going to give us this picture. So I'm going to read quite a bit, and I'm even going to provide this part for you up on the screen. But in Romans 9, verses 1 through 9, it says, Paul goes, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish I, that myself, that I were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Do you see what Paul says? He says, I wish that God would cut me off so that you guys could understand the message of hope that God offers. Have you ever said that for somebody? Paul says, I wish I could give up everything I know about Jesus so that my people, Israel, would get this message. Because there was a lot of confusion in the day and there was this idea that in order to have a relationship with God, that yeah, you needed to have a mere belief in Jesus, but you also still had to have these rituals and sacrifices and you had to continue this way of doing things that you've always done. And Paul is saying, no, it's not Jesus plus your works. It's Jesus. There's nothing else for you to do. And what's, what's interesting in this passage is that in verse 4, Paul says, I wish I could help you see. And then he just begins to really encourage the people about who Israel is. He says, you are the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Like God chose Israel. He did it through Abraham. He said, Abraham, leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go, and I'm going to show you a land. He says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to give you many descendants in which all are going to be blessed through the seed of your son. He goes, you were chosen. We're, we've been adopted. He says, there's just the divine glory. He says, there's just the covenants. Like, have you ever thought about this? When you read your Bible, God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. You see that there's a Mosaic covenant that's made as well. You see a Palestinian covenants later made. You see a new covenant. And God made all of these covenants with one people. He didn't make it with you. He made it with Israel. And Paul goes, he's made covenants with you. He's given you divine glory. He's given you the law. He said he gave you the receiving of the law. Like the law in Mount Sinai, he said he gave it to you so that you would see God's standard of living, that you would see how you measure up to God and what that looks like. He goes, that was all for you. He said he didn't give the law to anybody else. Like the Arabs never got the law. Polish never got the law. The Scottish never got the law. English never got the law. Americans, you didn't get the law. He goes, he handed it to you. 
Israel. He says the temple worship, all the promises, all of the patriarchs, and from them there is traced through human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all forever praised. Amen. He goes, you even got the coming king. You got the foreshadowing of Isaac. You got Jesus Christ. No one else can say that the lineage of the Messiah came through the Jews. Nobody else can claim that. Only Israel can say that. Do you see this? Paul goes, how do you know all of this? And then you've missed this next portion. And look what he says. He says, It is not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. He goes, just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean that you're born into the inheritance of Jesus. He goes, just because you think that you're Abraham's son doesn't mean you're a son of the promise. Because Abraham had what? Two sons. He had one born of disobedience, one born in slavery and encapsulated by law, and he had another one born of freedom and grace and truth, even though he didn't deserve it because he wasn't born of his own natural descent. He was born through a promise of God. The Holy Spirit had to intervene supernaturally. So what? Sarah could bear this child of the promise. And essentially, he says, every person looks somewhat like Isaac or Ishmael. He goes, that's the picture. And then look what he says from there. He says, in other words, verse 8, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. The son of the promise comes through Isaac, through Abraham. And if you go to Matthew 1, you'll see the very first three verses, and it says... What? A child of God, a child of Abraham, a child of Jacob. And it just continues. A child of Isaac, a child of Jacob. And it just continues on to what? The whole earth is blessed through the promise of Jesus Christ. And so you see the blessing. But here's the other one, as I want you to see, is that because of Isaac and because of Jesus and their similarities, they actually both bring a great deal of division among the people. And so, like, look at this. Romans gives us one picture, but Galatians chapter 4 gives us another picture. And in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 and following, I want you to see what Paul says. Now, are you with me here? Because I'm going to put a big old huge bow tie on this in just a second. Paul says something to these Galatians, and the Galatians are struggling with Jesus plus more, and that they need some, some extra, the same work process. And in 21, it says, Tell me you... Who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? So in a sense, they say, you want to keep the Ten Commandments. You want to abide by God's law. You want rituals. You want religion. Do you even know what that means? He goes, do you understand what that means? Like, you want to be a good person. You want to pretend that you have it all together. But do you understand what that means? And then he goes on, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Y'all got that? Yes. Ishmael and what? Isaac. Now look what he says. One of them is from the slave woman and the other one is by the free woman. 23. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of divine promise. 
24. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One of the covenant is from Mount Sinai, and it bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. My friends, Hagar is a picture of law. Here's what law is. Law is a standard in which you live by that always falls short of the glory of God's perfect will for your life. For instance, you have this set of rules and rituals. We know them as the Ten Commandments, and they've been expanded by the Jews multiple times. But here's what I want you to understand. If your goal is simply to keep the Ten Commandments, then you'll never experience freedom in God. And here's why. You can't keep the Ten Commandments. It's not possible for you. All the Ten Commandments are there to do is to show you that you fall short of the glory of God. If you've ever lied, if you've ever stolen, if you've ever been an adulterer towards God in any way, then all that reveals to you is your sin. And it reveals to you that you don't measure up on your own, right? Yes? And so because you don't measure up on your own, you're enslaved to what you've always known. And it means that you are separated from a holy God. Why? Because you're an Ishmaelite. And you are not in the promise of God. And because of that, you are born of the seed of Hagar, the slave woman. And you look more like a slave than someone walking in freedom. Then look what happens. Verse 25 says, Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who never were in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. And so he goes, look, Sarah, you, even though you've not experienced the son Isaac yet, shout for joy, but because through the promise, there's going to be lots and lots and lots of people who are freed from their sin and their slavery, and they walk as children of freedom. Shout for joy, because what? Isaac is the promise, and that's what Paul is saying. And then he goes on and Verse 28, he says, Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. And then 29, he says something that's, that's basically bringing enmity between this family. At the time the son born according to the flesh, was, he began to persecute the son born by the power of the Spirit. And so you have Ishmael, the son of the flesh, and he begins to what mock and jeer and persecute the son that was a part of the promise. Now, like here's the picture. Get this. Was Jesus jeered? Was he mocked? Are oftentimes you mocked as a Christian because you believe in God? Yeah, every now and then people go, what do they call you, Bible thumper, holy roller? Look, this didn't just start now, and it didn't just start at Jesus. It actually started a long, long time ago when Sarah said, that boy Ishmael is mocking my son. And then all of a sudden there was this clash and there was this contention that was taking place in their household. Why? Because the law actually butted heads with grace. The law actually hit head on with truth and freedom. And you have slavery, you have abounding by your sin and your pride and your arrogance, which is found in Ishmael, and it butts head with the child of the promise who looks a lot like Jesus, the one who died for your slavery, for your sin. Why? To set you free in truth and love and in grace. 
and they butt heads. Like, get this. Before Isaac was born, Ishmael and Abraham were going uh, to watch the, the Bethlehem Braves play. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> they went to Six Flags over Arabia together. I mean, they fished even at the Dead Sea. I mean, they, they just tranced and they, they washed in, through water in the Jordan. It was phenomenal. And then all of a sudden, the son of the promise is born. And all the fishing trips, all the camping trips, all of those things come to a cease. Why? Because the child of the promise is there now. And Sarah goes, the son that jeers and mocks the promise, is t- it's time for him to go. And so Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out of the house. And the Lord tells Abraham, even though he's sorrowful because this is his son Ishmael, it's still his son. The Lord says, listen to your wife Sarah. And he takes Ishmael, and though he is not a part of the promise, he blesses him, and he gives favor to this guy, and he becomes the father of a great nation. It's called the Arab states, the Arab nations. They're still clashing right now. They've been clashing for several thousand years, and they're going to continue to clash until the very end of times. Why? Because you've got pride and arrogance and discontent. And listen to me. You see all of this picture right now, right, with ISIS, you have the picture of Muslim Brotherhood. you got all of this. And there's this great struggle. And it's who, who's in charge? Who's not? What's happening? Why are the Jews so hated? Why won't people do something? And the struggle is this. You've got a group of people who are doing everything they can to honor their God through what? Works, religion, and philosophy. And it all dies short of the cross because they're tied and entangled in Ishmaelite tendencies when Jesus is actually the victory, the hope fulfilled to the promise of Jesus Christ. And not everyone who is an Israelite, not everyone who is a Gentile gets the heir of God simply because you believe in a higher power. You have to be a child and a seed of the promise which brings great discontentment in many places and it comes through the Son of Jesus Christ. And it's the power of the cross. That's the picture. And Paul says, this is it. And so in verse 30, he says, what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. You can't have both of them living together. You can't say law saves me and grace saves me because they don't both save you. One actually brings destruction and damnation and the other one brings hope and life and joy. And it's through the cross. And then in verse 31, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of slave woman, but we are children of the free woman. And so, like, here's the picture. Hagar represents law and works. Ishmael is the picture of that through his pride and his arrogance and his discontentment. Sarah represents what? Grace and freedom. And it's pictured in her son, Isaac, who is the seed of the promise, who inherits what? Life. And he's a picture of what it looks like to be sacrificial in his lifestyle and in his love. Why? Because he's a part of the kingdom of God. And there's a difference, my friends. Do you see this picture? In essence, here's the struggle. You are either an Ishmaelite or you are a son of the promise, Isaac. Now, what's interesting is, is both of their names start with I, but there's one of them that it kind of resonates in our life more, and that's the Ishmaelite. Because Ishmaelites, all they do is focus on the I in the name. It's all about me. It's what about, what about I? What about what I've done? What about what I haven't done yet and what I'm going to do? And it's all about you. 
And if you're the hero of your story, then you're not a part of the promise. Because if you're a part of the promise, you realize that you're never a hero in the story. Matter of fact, you realize that grace and freedom is in spite of you. That you didn't deserve it. But Ishmaelites, they think, if I keep working harder, if I keep doing this, and if I keep doing that, and if, if what about me, and what, what about what I did here? And I know I messed up here, but look what I did here. And it's always this. And so an Ishmaelite is always looking to do more to gain the approval of God. And Isaac, one that's characterized by joy and laughter, looks back and goes, I cannot believe what God brought me out of. I never want to go back there. And if you ever get around some of the group of guys that are here at Stone Point, that God's changed their life, you'll hear about all the times that they used to sit in the jail cell and they dreamed of all of these greater lives, and then they laugh now and they go, how in the world did God bring me out of all that? Because they know that it's the joy in the morning they receive that keeps them from going back to that old lifestyle. And that's the picture of this story. Now, the question really is for me is, awesome, what does that have to do with marriage? What's that have to do with anything? Like, what does, that, what does it do with us? Well, here's the cool thing is, if you look like Isaac, then it means that you look like Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced of this. If you will look like Jesus Christ in your relationships, all of them will go very well. So really, there's just a couple of things I want to just leave you with. One, marriages and relationships look and imitate Isaac and Jesus when you submit to the Father's will. When you submit yourself to, to God, you will have a vibrant, rich marriage. If you refuse to submit yourself to a greater authority in Jesus Christ in your marriage, in any relationship for that matter, you're always going to have an Ishmaelite on one side and an Isaac on the other. And it's going to be a butting of heads. Do you see that? Some of you are like, my husband is a great Ishmaelite. And we need to pray that they become Isaacs. Because Paul says you got to be an Isaac to what? Inherit the promise. And two Isaacs understand what God's done and they submit to themselves. Two Isaacs represent the heart of their father. Do you realize what Jesus said to his disciples? I mean, they're clamoring about which one's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They even get their mothers involved, and like moms are now bickering. And if you know the society, you get moms involved, it gets ugly, right? No, it's going to be my son. Uh uh-uh, uh, it's going to be my son. Uh uh-uh, uh, my son. And then, I mean, they're about to go to blows. And then Jesus, is like, whoa, stop. And then he shares with them what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of God. And in Matthew chapter 20, Verse 26 through 28, he says, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of the Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He goes, if you want to be great, serve someone. That reveals the heart of the Father. Why did Isaac come? As a servant to his father. As a servant to the house of God. Why did Jesus come? As a servant who willingly said, Hey, if this cup can pass, let it be. But not my will, but what? Your will be done. What would it look like in your marriage and your relationships if you were a servant instead of an Ishmaelite saying, what can I get out of it? What can you do for me? What, what can you do for us? And instead of just saying, what can I do for you? Like, husbands, when's the last time that you just asked your wife, what can I do for you? Babe, what can I do for you? How do I make your day a little easier? Parents, when's the last time that you just said, kiddos, how can we serve you? Because you think that you had kids so they can just serve you, right? 
It's kind of true, right? <laughs> what if you turned that and you started modeling servanthood? Do you know how much better the picture of that relationship would be? Because your kids know how invested you are in serving them. They don't mind serving with you. The other thing is this, is that it should reflect a sacrificial lifestyle. Isn't that what Isaac is a picture of, the sacrifice? Isn't that what Jesus is the picture of, his sacrifice? Do you realize that that's what, that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 5 when you see this whole idea of marriage? And ladies, y'all hate this text because it's always been taught so wrong and your husbands have kind of used it as this like little thing over the top of your heads. But in 21, it says, submit to, to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then 22, which we all love this verse, right, guys? Wives, submit to your husbands. But then it says, as you do to the Lord. That kind of takes some of the meaning out of it, right? For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Uh-huh, yep, uh-huh. Did you hear that? <laughs> hey, go ahead and get the nod in. Like, go ahead. And then if, like, if you want to stay there, then don't listen to anything else I say. 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, now also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Awesome. And then 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or without any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. Like, what would it look like, husbands, if you became sacrificial in your life? Now, here's the deal. I'm about to kind of, I'm going to hammer down on you for just a sec. You are supposed to be tired. Husbands, like, you're in, you're in, you don't get a break. The day that you showed up at the, at the wedding ceremony, the day that you took the vows with your wife, the day that you said, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, until death do his part, and then you decided to go along from there, and because of uh, your love life that's orchestrated, as we saw earlier in our couples, you had children. And when you did... It meant that the, the life of ease is gone. The very minute that you became one flesh is the very minute that you didn't deserve a break anymore. If you want a break, stay single. Seriously. For those of you that are single and you just can't wait to get married, why? <laughs> it is a lot of stinking work. And somebody just asked me, why... How do you keep going? I mean, you should be tired. And I'm like, I am stinking tired all the time. I would love to have a break. But guess what? I have a wife that I have to serve. I have three children that I'm trying to raise and train the Lord. I don't get a break. It means you start early in the morning and you go to late at night. And you serve and you ask, what can I do for you? And you lay your life down every day for the betterment of your family. So why? Jesus Christ is depicted in your lifestyle. And guys, let me just explain something to you. The day that you get a break is the day that you slip up and have an affair on your wife because your hands become idle and you're looking at someone else instead of what God gave you. It's the day that you start browsing around on your phone and you start looking at things that you shouldn't be looking at because you're lazy and slothful and you ought to be doing something else. And so when you think you need a break next time, get up and mow the yard. Do a dish. And ladies, it's the same for you. When your husband comes home, 
He is simply to join you in partnering, that you cook together, and then you put the things on the table together, that you give your kids baths together, and you change their diapers together. It's a partnership. And you die to yourself sacrificially. Why? Because that's the picture of Isaac and it's the picture of Jesus Christ. They died so that the what? Nations would be blessed. If you want your family to be blessed, be sacrificial. So let me just kind of close it with this. This is kind of a cool illustration, I think. You know, you go to these lovely weddings and, and you see this and there's typically someone that goes up a lot cuter than me. A lot of times they light the candles, you know. Um, typically it's like the brother-in-law that got left out. Uh, sometimes it's a kid that you just had, you know, like you felt guilty. It's like a little cousin down the line. And so you had to have them light the candles, right? But either way, like you see this picture and a lot of people were kind of moving away from this. But, you know, in the traditional weddings, like you see this and it's like this great picture of two families, two lives coming together. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30, it literally says that that's why you leave your father and mother to what? Cleave together to become one flesh. It's this picture of you dying to yourself. But here's the great debate. Like you see it. They're singing this awesome 90s song. You know what I mean? They're staring into each other's eyes. It's phenomenal. And all the guys in here are like, bring on the fajitas and cake. Let's get out of this deal. But they're, they're, they're looking at each other. They go. They, they light their candle. And it's just it's awesome. They mess up the first time, and so they stare longer. And it's because their hands are shaky. They're in love. I mean, all of that. And then they find, like, you see this picture. Like, but here's the age-old debate. Like, here's the question. Do the other candles stay lit as a picture of two families coming together? I mean, look at what God's done. I mean, you got this woman who's strong and vibrant, and, man, she has so much to offer. And you got this guy who, man, he's breaking out of the old mold, and he's going to be different than his family and this new family tree. And so you look at this family that's coming together, and it's just awesome depiction. Or do you actually do something different, which I think is true? And you do that. Because really, that's the picture of marriage, friends. It's not about what I'm bringing to the table. It's not about the Ishmaelite I tendencies. Because those tendencies actually enslave your marriage. They encapsulate you. And you are just bound by strongholds and deception. And hey, it's all about pride and arrogance and content, uh, con contention against each other. But when you become one flesh and you say, I'm going to actually no longer be a me, but we're going to be a we, then you die to everything else and you say, God, we're trusting in you that we're going to what? Bear the seed of promise to the next generation. And isn't that what we all want? Like, isn't that what it sounds? I mean, isn't that, doesn't that sound better than what our culture is in right now? Can I just explain something to you? There are Ishmaelites in here today that you've never trusted in God, and you want your marriage to look like a godly marriage, you cannot have a godly marriage until you've bowed your heart, you've made yourself contrite before the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he lives in you, then he gives you the power to be something that you'll never be on your own. And so I just trust that you can get several things out of this. And let me just leave you with this one statement as I close. Covenant marriage is at its best when we reflect God's heart with our lifestyles and sacrificial service to our spouses and others. It's not about you anymore. It's not just me. It's we. Amen?
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this awesome story of Isaac. I thank you, Lord, that he is a picture of the coming Messiah. He is a foreshadow of the things to come. And Lord, even though the people of Israel didn't all catch it, Lord, some of them did. Lord, just as in this culture, it's the same now. Not everybody catches it, but some do. And Lord, because of what you've done through the mercy and the generosity of your son, Jesus Christ, we can experience life and freedom. And Lord, we're no longer to be just religious people, but we are to be bound in a relationship with you, a covenant relationship, two parties coming together, regardless of feelings and circumstances, and they say we're in it for the long haul. And so, Lord, for our marriages in here, may they keep their eyes fixed on the prize. May they run their race with perseverance. Would you bless them? And Lord, would you help them display the heart of the Father, and would they be sacrificial in all that they do? Would they no longer be concerned just about them? But how can we serve and give ourselves up for other people? In Jesus' name, amen.